Well, I don't know how many of you took uh, kind of an intro to like business writing classes. Uh, it seems like there's all these entry-level classes, whether they be in high school or whether they be in college. You had your speech 103, you know, your persuasive argument, and your, but then you write these business letters and things like that. Um, uh, I, I think that there's a proper form and function, and this guy has taken it to a whole nother level. This book actually came out like 20 years ago, but it said Jerry Seinfeld on it, so I was already interested in it, and it's been on, in my library for years. Um, and it's called Letters from a Nut. And the way Jerry Seinfeld describes it is, um, he, was at, uh, he was at a kind of a, a gathering where on the table there was these letters that had been written and just strategically placed, as if, company could just pick him up and read them. And he started reading them. Uh, and as he was reading them, he started reading them aloud. And there was lots of laughs from these, what sounded like professional letters being written, but there were these outrageous requests. And so the more he read them aloud, the more laughs he got. And yet he noticed one guy in the room, the guy that could only have been the author of them because he wasn't really laughing. He was sort of sitting there with the artist pride and the sort of smile that kind of went, people get my art. And so uh, come to find out the guy who goes under the pseudonym of Ted L. Nancy uh, is a guy by the name of Barry Martyrs, I believe his name is. And Barry used to write on um, Letterman and Leno. Uh, he wrote for Bill Maher and, and so, um, Jerry went to his kind of publicist and who went to his editor and they compiled a list of these letters. And they're just sort of entertaining outrageous requests. And, and as a professional business, you're not sure if you should take them seriously, though I think his win was always when he got a reply back to them. Uh, and so he writes here, um, I'll just read you a couple of them. This was to the Debbie Reynolds Hotel and Casino uh, in Las Vegas, Nevada, and he writes, Dear General Manager, I am interested in staying at your hotel for one week starting February 21st. I am part of a, a touring dinner theater group and I have a dilemma. I look exactly like Abraham Lincoln. How can I be safeguarded so that others don't come up to me and pester me and, for autographs and pictures with them? It can be very annoying in restaurants to sit there and look like Abraham Lincoln and have people come up to you and say they want a picture with you so that they can show their kids. I have tried to alter my appearance. I've had the mole removed, and, but it's still a nuisance. I've dyed my hair and beard red, but to no avail. I've even taken, off, taken the hat off. I'm still bothered. People love Lincoln. One guy tried to give me his Lincoln car uh, once. That's how impressed he was. I didn't take it, of course, but uh, I have been in the tunnel. Can an area of the coffee shop be sectioned off when I take my meals? I don't drink liquids at dinner, um, so I'm quick. Can the proper hotel staff be notified that Abraham Lincoln's double is eating and does not want to be pestered? This would be for the entire week starting February 21st. Thank you for letting me know regarding this situation as I have to make travel plans soon. I have long admired Debbie Reynolds Hotel for its family atmosphere, good taste, and cornbread. This is why I chose to stay here while others stay elsewhere. Your hotel stands, uh, your hotel stands for the clean America that this world needs, even in the lobby. Having Amer uh, Abraham Lincoln in your hotel, he would probably not be as noticed as in other hotels. I want to make sure, but thanks for getting me back to me on this. Are there any rooms available on the 21st? Dear Mr. Nancy, 
Your letter has been forwarded to me and I empathize with your dilemma. I am sure that your appearance at this resort will be treated with the same respect that has been given so many of other celebrity guests, i.e. Rip Taylor, June Allison, Ann Miller, Donald O'Connor, Robert Wagner, Stephanie Powers, Jane Powell, to name a few. Additionally, when not in, in Hollywood making a movie, Debbie Reynolds also frequents the hotel on a daily basis. Consistently, uh, consequently, our staff has been exposed to quite a distinctive guest list. Thank you for including the Debbie Reynolds Hotel and Casino in your travel plans, on and on and on, and gives them some information. Well, seeing that they took the bait, he goes back and he says, um, now dear Mr. Ritchie, um, thank you for your response to my letter regarding my future visit to the W. Reynolds Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas, and, uh, and, I look, and the fact that I look like Abraham Lincoln. But sir, with all due respect, I cannot be compared to Rip Taylor. I am the 16th president of the United States. He throws confetti. I am a log splitter and not so easy, a not so easy accomplishment. And while I have enjoyed Rip Taylor over the years, I think that he is a terrific entertainer and I have been sprinkled by his confetti. I am the president of the United States. Abraham Lincoln was a great statesman. He had the dignity and the respect of many. He walked, when he walked into a room, you knew, uh, uh, you, knew you were with a leader. The president that cared for all. People like me, people treat me like Abraham Lincoln. They call me Abe or Mr. Lincoln or Mr. President. My name is Ted, so if, if people treat me like the president, I suppose I should be accorded the due respect. As a result, can I be assured that I will have the privacy at your hotel? Can I get a security guard to walk around the restaurant when I take my meals? We don't need to bother, uh, we don't need to have another incident. I need to know that I can have a little extra when it comes to my safety. Please get back to me on this, blah, 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 blah. Um, in response to your current letter, we are currently sold out on February 22nd, 23rd, and 24th. <laughs> Uh, he has some good ones. I'll just read you quickly one other one. Uh, this is to the American Seating Company. Uh, there, and they, put, they produce um, American seating in all, um, like in stadium venues. So this is like going to a sporting event. Um, Dear Mr. Meyer, I had a seating question and I was referred to you because I had understand that you're, you manufacture stadium and arena seating. My question is, when entering or exiting a seat in the stadium, which is the proper side to face the person sitting down? Rear to them or crotch to them? I'm always at a quandary when, the, when this problem comes up. To hence, last week at a sporting event, I had to leave my seat. There was a row of people, all from the same family, that were sitting down the row. I exited my seat, stood up, and faced away from the family. Then I m moved down the line, realizing that my buttocks were not two inches from the whole guy's family. I had shown an entire family my rear end. But then again, if I had turned around and moved down the aisle that way, wouldn't it be worse? Stadium seating is, always, is the only situation in life where you can show whole rows of people your butt or your crotch. And this is acceptable. Can, I, can something be done about this seating? Should the rows be changed? I suggest a single row straight up, from the, up, straight up to the top. You walk up to the stadium and you find your seat and you go up until you get it. Question, is there a gracious way to exit? Thank you, sir, for your response. I won't even read you his response. <laughs> but um, I think we're all, you know, there was that uh, line that somehow um, are, 
there, there are stupid questions. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like for that, that person in class who asked the question, there's no stupid questions. No, really, truly, there are. And the reason I take the time to read you a couple of outrageous requests, some, some silly requests, is because um, I want to talk about a very small book that doesn't even have more than 25 verses in it. And I don't know how many of you have ever done a study through the, the, the letter, the short letter called Philemon. Philemon is a letter written from the Apostle Paul to Philemon, who is a, a leader in the church and a slave owner. But he's writing about a mutual relationship, about a runaway slave by the name of Onesimus. And he writes from jail, which was probably in Ephesus, to this town in Colossae, and he's advocating. And I think it's a fascinating story, but the reason I want to spend time talking about it is because for all intents of purpose, it is an outrageous request. A request that no one was even daring to ask. No one was even thinking that this was something that should be a conversation piece. And so Paul, who's in prison for the gospel and not terribly ashamed of it, starts drafting this letter because he's become close to this runaway slave. And somehow, even though Onesimus isn't in jail, he's tending to Paul's needs. Onesimus has run away, but in finding Paul, he also finds Christ. He's now become this new Christian. And now, the, you know, the result or the, the, the sort of penalty uh, for a runaway slave was death or some severe form of physical punishment. Paul steps in. And what Paul is doing in the most outrageous, outlandish way, going against every grain in culture, is trying to advocate for reconciliation between classes. Remember, Paul's the guy who doesn't believe in male and female. Before God, there's no Jew or Gentile. Before God, there's no, there's no um, slave or free man. There is this fullness of God expressed in all of humanity, and we need to place the value of people from all walks of life in all classes. And Paul, in this revolutionary way, decides to go to this aristocratic leader that he has a relationship, that he also led him to Christ, and leverage all of the influence he can. He was making an outlandish even a nutty request. People weren't thinking about social divides being a problem. That was the norm. I would even go so far as to say it was the systemic sin of the day. It was the commonly held belief that whatever class you were born into, if it was a higher class, that was to your benefit, but also your right. But the grace of God somehow gets eliminated as if recognizing that it all comes from God. And so Paul kind of goes all in to want to write this letter. And so it's a fascinating letter, and I actually want to spend the next few weeks. And the reason I'm calling this series A Useful Faith is because the name Useful is actually what it was a common name for every slave.
If you were a marketing genius and you were having, oh, what's your business? Well, I'm in charge of advertising this slave trade and I want to sell the best servants. What are you going to name your servants? Here's useful. Who bid on useful? So Onesimus' name literally translates useful. Kind of a good name if you're looking to buy help. Now keep in mind, all the industry was built on the idea that slavery and ownership of this way was okay and normal. It is important to distinguish between what is our American slave history and Caribbean slave trafficking is somewhat different than, than um, slave trade 2,000 years ago because people were given a chance to buy their way out of it. It wasn't the same level of total oppression, but you didn't have a lot of rights. I'll just qualify it and say that. But here you have, again, a runaway slave, and Paul has now gotten involved in this, in this kind of... So Paul, again, one of the things we talk about at Mission Hills is a living faith. You might have a belief that God is actually generous, but how do you express generosity? You might have a belief that God is all-loving, but how do you tangibly and concretely love? You might believe that Jesus is your advocate before your heavenly father, that Jesus' death and resurrection was the thing that crosses the great divide called our sin. But how are you advocating for another? This is what Paul does. Even though he's staring with chains on in a jail cell, he's like, no, I'm going to advocate for this guy. And so I want to read you uh, parts of, uh, you know, the, it's not a lot to this book. Like I said, it's all of 25 verses. But let me read you the first part. And, and he talks about, and so today I just want to talk about how is faith useful in me? Um, like it was in Paul. Because I think it's really important for us to understand and then also be able to articulate to others the reality of, of the utility of faith in our life the usefulness of faith. Because people are looking at you for wasting your time this afternoon by sitting in this gathering, or by writing checks and giving away money, or by volunteering to help across social divides that people you'll never intersect with again. Why are you doing it? I would like to think that somehow faith is a part of what moves you to do things that the world would look at as saying, why are you doing that? Let's read. This is what Paul says. And he's now, this is four verses in, uh, he's writing to, uh, uh, again, the slave owner Philemon. He says, I always thank my God when I pray for you, Philemon, because I keep hearing about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people. So this is someone who's come to faith in Christ and is now growing. He's growing in generosity. He's growing in hospitality. They're, uh, they, they, they're, they're meeting in homes. They didn't have buildings. Uh, and I am praying that you will put into action, sounds like Mission Hills, like have a living faith, a practice of faith. It says, put into action the generosity that comes from your faith as you understand and experience all the good things we have in Christ. Paul, from jail, with no meal plan, unless Onesimus brings him something to eat, is talking about all that they have in Christ. Can I just say, it is so easy for me to be short-sighted with the circumstances of my life and forget that 
how much I have in Christ. Why do we need community? Why do we need a standing appointment with God? Because I'm really good at, at, at rewriting the narrative of my life based on the circumstances and how well or how bad they're going. And Paul wants, from jail, wants to celebrate all that they have in Christ. Your love has given me much joy and comfort, my brother, for your kindness has often refreshed the hearts of God's people. This is why I am boldly asking a favor of you. I could demand it in the name of Christ because it is the right thing for you to do. In other words, I could play the spiritual leadership card. I could play the spiritual authority card and say, listen, I led you to Christ. You should do what I said. I have spiritual, even though we're, we're peers, even though we're kind of colleagues in this, I'm not going to just say do it because I said so. Why? Because we understand that there's no love in obligation. Paul understands the heart of God. God is not going to force us to serve him, to worship him, to give to him, or to love him, because that mitigates love. So Paul appeals to him as a brother in Christ, and he says this, but because of your love, I prefer simply to ask you, consider this a request from me, Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner for the sake of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you to show kindness to my child Onesimus. I became his father, he's talking in spiritual terms, in the faith when he, while here in prison. Onesimus has been of much use to you in the past, but now he is very useful to both of us. I am sending him back to you and with him comes my own heart. So the first thing that I would just kind of comment on is when faith becomes useful, again, we're talking about faith in me. Uh, how does faith kind of affect my life? And I would simply say, faith for me becomes a basis for hope. I need the hope that says my circumstances, my limited financial means, my limited or, or physical uh, abilities, my limited mental capacity is not the end of the story. Dun so my faith in Christ lets me live with a hope that God will just take my gesture, take the offering that is my life, and do something exponentially through it. If there's one thing that I struggle with in ministry is that I don't always get to see the harvest of all of the things that I do in ministry. It's just difficult. It, you just get a little discouraged. I've pastored for over 20 years. I don't always get to see a lot of fruit. I see marriages stay together. I see kids grow up. I get to be a part of a few weddings, a few funerals. I get to put on some really great events. I meet some of your friends but you don't get to see what I always like to dream about in terms of life stage story or life transformation stories. But if there's one thing that people who have been a part of my life for 10 and 20 years would like to say to it is say, and there are two states behind me. Like I, I came from California and before that I was in Alabama and before that I was in Southern California. And there's people from each of those stops along the way that would still like to remind me of words that I said and events that I hosted and things that I did to which I have to go, okay, I get it, I get it. 
It's the hope that I have. And even though I don't always get to see the ROI next weekend, it doesn't mean that God's not at work. Faith for me on a, starts as a basis of hope. Yeah, I like to think that I have a three-digit you know, IQ. Yeah, I like to think that I have some interpersonal skills. I like to think that I'm mildly organized, a little bit creative. I can, but I realize that's not gonna change the world, let alone anyone's life in particular. My hope is built on Christ. So when you look at insurmountable obstacles, when you look at, at relationships that feel like there's no way to heal this thing, when you look at things like how are we ever going to dig our way out of bankruptcy or whatever that looks like, I'm just saying start with faith because as long as Jesus rose from the grave, my hope is built in new life. There's just a great chance to say amen. I mean, come on now. Come on. There we go. Now, now useful, again, was a common name of a slave, and, and he's run away, and he goes to Paul, and Paul's now in this awkward position to somehow get in between. Have you ever been called to kind of be in between? Have you ever been kind of put in between a difficult situation, maybe between two neighbors who are at odds, maybe between a friend group or family members? Yeah not a desirable position to be in. Paul takes the role as a transformational opportunity because this is what has been done for Paul. I don't know if you know the story, we'll go into it later, but Barnabas was the guy when no one wanted to trust Paul, would stood in and he advocated for Paul's reputation, for Paul's contribution when no one would give him the time of day. So Paul is doing what's been done for him, which sounds like a case for apprenticing and discipleship. And so here we have him, uh, Paul's hope and confidence is the change now in his own life and how others have advocated for him. So the first thing we see is faith being useful for me is simply a basis for hope. But I would go on to say that it has also become my motivation to help. My faith in terms of its utility in my life is, is the motivate, not because I'll save people, but like generosity would say, I'll save myself from maybe <laughs> believing that I deserve what God's provided. Or that simply like our rhythm of compassion would say, it's, I wanna help because I recognize that we're all needy. And compassion is simply recognizing that our needs are just different. I have first world problems, maybe you have third world problems. I don't know. But there's a way that we can be motivated to help because of faith. And so Onesimus has become this Christian, and that's why Paul refers to him as son. Now, having a special relationship with him, he's now become, he advocates like you would your own child. If you have led people in faith, you advocate like for as a spiritual parent. And he could have sent the letter um, saying, hey, he's with me, but here's what he does. He sponsors the letter of reconciliation, and then he goes, you deliver it. Wait, 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 but that's before I get a decision on him. He goes, that's what faith is. Can't you just send it and send it with a messenger, and then we'll wait for his reply to see if he's cool with it? Because that could, you know, that could be my head. And he's like, nope, we're going all in. 
I'm not going to dictate the terms of his response. But by the way, we don't know his response because he never responds. In fact, if you read through the 25 verses of the letter to Philemon, it's like a one-way phone call where you're only listening to the person in front of you's side of it. You don't get to hear what the other person's saying. But the fact that this letter remains can only tell me that it was saved that it was well received. Because if you get a letter that you don't like, what do you do? (laughs) Throw it out. But somehow this became a teaching moment. This became miracle territory. It, It transcended the cultural values and the norms. And this new community of faith is saying, oh dang. See, this was unheard of. And what what it's a testimony of, if all we have is the book of Philemon, what we would understand that first generational Christianity had gone through a radical shift in their worldview and how they viewed other people. So somehow this letter is preserved and that's the biggest affirmation of Philemon's response to it. I think he took to it. I think he forgave. I think he welcomed him back home. Now, the reason I say that, I want to read a little bit more. But before I get to that, I want to just read you something that I found. Um, I took a course with a a professor by the name of N.T. Wright. I did it online, but he posted this letter because he was doing a teaching on Philemon, and I knew I was going to be talking about this. So I did some extra study, some extra homework this summer. And um, he, he shared this letter that I want to share with you. And there was this aristocrat who was called Pliny the Younger. Pliny the Younger had an uncle who was Pliny the Elder. Both of them were aristocratic. Both of them were well-known. They grew up in legal ranks and political spheres of influence. And again, it's basically a caste system based on nobility and wealth and titles. And so Pliny the Younger writes a letter to this guy by the name of Sabinius. And Sabinius was of his ilk, of that class. And he talks about Sabinius having a runaway slave. And what makes this so fascinating is this is how this kind of behavior was being treated. And Pliny the Younger, who was not a Christian, not transformed by the life of Jesus, was writing this letter in a very commonsensical way. He was writing it in a sort of way that would make everyone sort of appease everyone happy. And and so it's really important to go, well, we can adapt that and try and translate it for our time. But this was a contemporary of Paul. So we have Paul's letter to Philemon, but I want to read you Pliny's letter to Sabinius and listen to the difference in how he courts him to somehow forgive him. This is what he says. Your freedman, whom you lately mentioned to me with displeasure, has been with me and threw himself at my feet with as much submission as he could have fallen at yours. He earnestly requested me with many tears and even with all of the eloquence of silent sorrow to intercede for him. In short, he convinced me by this whole behavior that he sincerely repents of his faults. I am persuaded he is thoroughly reformed because he seems deeply sensible of his guilt. 
I know you are angry with him, and I know too it is not without reason. But clemency can never exert itself more laudably than when there is the most cause for resentment. You once had an affection for this man, and I hope will we'll have it again. Meanwhile, let me only prevail with you to pardon him. If you should incur if he should incur your displeasure hereafter, you will have so much the stronger plea to, in excuse for your anger as you show yourself more merciful to him now. Does this look like posturing? Does this feel like all giving off all appearances? This is behavior modification as it, at its best and just appealing to his behavior where Paul is writing to this heart level because transformation always comes from the inside out. And this is what he says, concede something to his youth, to his tears, and to his own natural mildness of temper. Do not make him uneasy any longer, and I will add too, do not make for yourself so. For a man of your kindness of heart cannot be angry without feeling great uneasiness. I am afraid, were I to join my request with his, I should seem rather to compel than to request you to forgive him. Yet I will not hesitate even to write mine with his, and in so much the stronger terms, as I have very sharply and severely reproved him, positively threatening never to interpose again in his behalf. But though it was proper to say this to him in order to make him more fearful of offending, I do not say so to you. I may perhaps again have occasion to entreat you upon this account and again obtain your forgiveness, supposing, I mean, his fault should be such and may become me to intercede for and for you to pardon. Farewell. Whoa. This is what we have in the gospel. The gospel of reconciliation. The gospel that is willing to keep short accounts even though it doesn't feel natural. The, the gospel that says we don't hold grudges because Christ has forgiven us. We don't hold people in contempt because Christ no longer holds us in contempt. This gives us powerful freedom. So when we say, what is the utility of our faith? What is the usefulness? Well, actually, I used to be a slave to sin, but now Christ in me has become useful as a source of hope. Christ in me, my faith has become a motivation to help others, even others who I think don't appreciate my help, don't, don't value my help, maybe even don't want my help. The third thing I would simply say that faith has become for me is an internal compass. What do I mean by that? Is there is something that has to guide you internally. Otherwise, we're submitting ourselves to religious obligations. Kind of like Pliny was implying when writing this civic letter. Paul writes from a heart perspective and he talks about the transformation he's gone through. He was one of the most feared persecutors of the way of Jesus. And now he's come full circle and had to live down his own past. 
And so Paul is writing with this gospel message as this internal compass or this conviction that becomes for him a great source of motivation. And for him, he starts talking about it. And, and the way I say it is that our faith in Christ guides us in a direction. And that the importance of that is it begins to supersede our circumstances, our feelings, our disappointment, our setbacks. And Paul, in this case, is unusually proud slash not embarrassed that he's in jail. Do you, do you catch that? I'm in prison for the sake of Christ. Like normally you're like, yeah, I'm doing time. Yeah, I got busted. Like this doesn't feel like penance to him. Why? Because inside of him is the cause of Christ. And even though I can't preach in the temple courts or I can't make my missionary journey, I can still proclaim Christ reconciled in me. And I'm doing this on behalf of this young believer. Golly, I want that. He's not overcome by this present need or this present limitation because he has centered on Christ. I would say this, just as I wrap up, some of you have, um, are staring at impossible circumstances right now. Maybe it's an impossible relationship. Maybe it's an impossible sort of deadline. Maybe it's an impossible sort of parenting thing. Maybe it's an impossible family thing that you're like, it's just the way it's always going to be. Some of you have dealt with impossible things, impossible moments, that now only looking back, you're not sure what changed exactly. You're not sure when things began to pivot. Maybe you can point to something, but what you can do in looking back is begin to see, oh, I would never want to go through that again, but thank God he delivered me. Thank God for his faithfulness. Thank God he provided. See, this is what happens. When all we do is sort of look for God in the moment, we, we're blinded with short-sightedness. But when we can begin to see God in the sequence of events in our life over the last three, five, and ten years, what we begin to see is a God who is ever-present, who a God who is always at work. And even though we can't always feel him or wonder what he's doing, we have a sense that God is with us through it all. And I hope that becomes a source of hope, even in uncertainty. I, I hope that that motivates you to want to help, even though you need help. I hope that that becomes sort of this core conviction, that this internal compass that you say, I just believe that God sees and that God cares and that God is undeniably in love with me. I'll just tell you this. There have been moments where um, I get short-sighted and I don't see God's provision. And I hold God in contempt like, I'm giving my whole life to you. Where are you? But if I can, with a little bit more wisdom and maturity and frankly getting counsel, see God in the panorama of my life, it's one thing after another that makes me believe that God is near and present. I'm going to tell you a story just to illustrate this. Um, 
several years ago, about 10 years ago, I married a couple. I married a couple and within a year and a half, I learned of their divorce. I was saddened by it, I was surprised by it, as well as a group of people that were also surprised by it. But there were some circumstances that didn't involve an affair, that didn't involve anything, it was just struggling to communicate. Does that sound like your story? And as the story goes, there was just a disconnect. A lot of arguing, a different way of communicating, maybe one more on an emotional level, one more on a cognitive level. But within short order, the divorce was finalized only to run into the guy a couple of times along the way. He was still in Austin, and so we started meeting. And one thing led to another, where wanting to make the appeal back to see about the ability to reconcile. I was like, wait a second, you want to try and get back together? A lot of rejection, a lot of hurt feelings, a lot of misunderstandings, a lot of things that were said. But that became... The desire. So I said, well, we can keep meeting and I can keep praying, like you do. I hold on to hope. I don't always get to see the results. But every now and then, God shows up in unexpected ways. Well, he made a gesture, made himself available for a week, and the, the sort of invitation wasn't responded to. But it wasn't about two months later where, through a friend, an invitation was made to talk. Well, that talk led to another talk, which led to a courtship, which led to the same couple getting married for the second time. Love had never been lost. Wasn't always understood. Listen, every now and then, I get to see God resurrect the dead. I get to see relationships that had flatlined find a heartbeat again. And it's a beautiful thing. I get to see healing from prayers that are, are physical healing. In fact, it was interesting, right about that time, as I got to do that wedding a second time, there was another couple that I was involved with, and they had separated. And I remember going to them going, oh, hell no. Hell will not prevail against us. Like, I was on cloud nine thinking, this is what God does. God shows up. Your marriage is not over. I know there's a lot of hurt. I know, but God can do this. And I'm telling the story about what God has done. And it was everything. I mean, I thought God was going to heal it. And I was praying with all of the confidence in the world that God was going to repair the relationship and it didn't happen. Listen, some of you are facing impossible things. Some of you are facing the most complacent things. But what I'm suggesting to you, if you really want to grow your faith in Christ, begin to see God in the sequence of your life. Take note of the most difficult th times and figure out how did God provide. In the most uncertain wilderness wanderings, find God in those because he was there. So when people ask, well, where's God in the injustice, in the abuse, in human trafficking, in famine? I'm like, right there, brokenhearted, weeping because this was not the world that he intended. My faith becomes really useful. And it becomes a great source of hope. I don't always get my way but I just know that God has been faithful. And, and it motivates me to want to help. That's the minister in all of us.
You know what a minister is? Not your day job that is pastor or title. It's you putting the divine on display. Welcome to the ministry. And faith just being this internal guide, this, this compass, this compulsion to say, I can't not do this for the sake of Christ. We're going to pray right now, and we're going to prepare our time for communion tonight. So I'm going to um, defer to Laurel as she guides us in a prayer as we prepare our hearts for, for communion. And I want to invite the band to come on up and uh, kind of lead us during this time.